Uh, we're in Romans chapter 8. Actually, maybe before I do anything else, maybe I'll pray, and then we'll get into this. Uh, Jesus, we believe that you have sent the Spirit, that you and the Father have sent the Spirit into your people. And uh, we ask that now you would be speaking to us, not just through me, but by your Spirit, you'd be speaking to us and you'd be growing us as your people, transforming us through the, the power of the word of the gospel in the lives of those you have saved. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, yeah, in Romans, we, we're, we're jumping into the middle of a, a book of the Bible here. We do that a little bit at the moment. I'm glad that by next week we won't be for a while. Uh, but just to give you a little overview, uh, we're kind of at the top of the, the gospel mountain when we get to Romans 8. So, so in Romans, this is such a brief summary. In Romans chapter 1 to 4, uh, Paul dove into the fact that uh, through the gospel, through Jesus, we're made right with God by faith in Jesus. Uh, justification is the word you'd give to it if you're giving it just one word. Uh, we are justified before God through what Jesus has done, uh, nothing of ourselves. And then from chapter 5 onwards, he's kind of been expounding the hope that we have in Jesus, really pulling that out for us. And when we get to chapter 8, he's, he's, he's hit the top of the mountain. And, and stepping a little bit back from chapter 8, at the end of chapter 7, Paul, Paul turned and grappled a bit with the significantly with the reality of sin, uh, sin in the life of a Christian, sin, sin in our lives, the fact that it still pops its head up. And, and he's, he's uh, been talking about there our powerlessness to deal with it on our own. Uh, and it's funny, but it's really hard. You get to the end of Romans chapter 7, uh, and if you're reading this in your head, uh, it's hard not to kind of cry out the words that we get in Romans 7, 24 to 25, I think. Uh, it feels like it would be dishonest to the text because Paul gets there, right? And he's, he's, he's gone through this whole section where he struggles with sin and the thing that I do, do not want to do, I do, and the thing I, I, I want to do, I do not do. And, and he gets to this point and he says, Wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, it's, this, it's this glorious moment where he says, I couldn't deal with that, but Jesus can deal with that. And so in Romans 8, he started to unpack the reality of being a person who is saved by the grace of God that is in Jesus, starting with those amazing words that, we, that, that are in verse 1 there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Couldn't you just couldn't, couldn't you bathe in those words for a bit, you know, just, just soak them in. Maybe not bathe. That's a weird way to put it. But it's... The beautiful, justifying reality reflected back again there. There's no condemnation for us now who are in Christ Jesus. And we're actually not going to focus there tonight. We're going to focus. I got Bob to read out 1 through 11 just now, but we're going to focus down in 5 through 11 of this, of this chapter. And as we reach verse 5, Paul does this shift in what he's talking about from the, from the justifying reality of salvation uh, that there's no condemnation, uh, to the transforming reality of salvation. And he shines a light on, on this glorious truth. The Spirit of God is working in us and will transform us with resurrection power. Now, I think 
at a first glance, if you were reading this passage uh, for the first time, what would stand out maybe is uh, about it is the uh, the two contrasting sets that you get in the in the start sets of actions and results that Paul speaks about here. Paul talks about the mind that's set on the flesh. Uh, there's your action. Uh, and, and really the word mind there that we translate mind is that much broader word than that. It's a word that, that encapsulates everything that is within you. And so it's, it's your desires, it's your thoughts, it's your will, it's your mind. And he says the mind that's set on the flesh, the result of that is death. And then he also talks about the mind that's set uh, on the things of the spirit and that produces life and peace. And so there again, you have action and result, right? Uh, and, and, and we know, it, we'll pause there and just say, we know it to be true, don't we? I mean, really, we, we know that a mind set on the things of this world, if we think about it, we sometimes live like we don't know it, but if we think about it, mind set on the things of this world, on the flesh, is death. We see it in little ways. We see it in the way that things promise us so much when we go after them in this world, and yet they deliver so little. In fact, they deliver emptiness, more dissatisfaction than maybe we started with when we go after them. You know, possessions, lusts, whatever. And we know from Scripture that in the long run, the death of it is more than just that, that inner dissatisfaction. The death of it is an eternal death, like Matt spoke to us about the other week over Easter. It's an eternal condemnation under the wrath of God that comes from pursuing the desires of the, the mind of the flesh. And yet Paul says that those who have their minds set on the things of the Spirit don't receive that. Uh, they have a different result, a different thing that they reap both now and in the future. They reap life and peace. Isn't it so much better to pursue God's way? You know, don't we sometimes get tricked into thinking that it's that it's hard, that it's hazardous, that it's and it can be those things, but that it's boring or that it's that it's less rewarding to pursue God's way of life. But but it's not. It is life and peace. It is rewarding to you right now, and it is greatly rewarding to you in the future to follow God's way. And and let's just pause there and reflect again. This affects how we see the world around us. Uh, what, we, what we've seen so far. This isn't the main point of where we're going tonight, but I, I, did, I just wanted to pull this out. Um, it affects how we see the world and how we see the mission that we're on as a church. Because so often we're tempted to look at the world around us and see people who are very similar to us, who are, have similar families, have similar work, have, have lead similar lives, sometimes very moral lives, uh, and, and, and to think, well, there's not a lot of difference there, is there? Sometimes. And yet, and yet Paul paints us a picture here and the difference is between life and death. And he says that, they're, that this is how you can divide all of humanity. Those who have life because they have the mind of the spirit and those who have death because they have the mind of the flesh. And we know that, that nothing we can do would cross over that gap, right? Nothing I can do can move me or anyone else from flesh to spirit. You know, a few hundred k's west of us here, there's the Great Australian Bite. You guys would be familiar with it. It's about a thousand kilometers of shark-infested sea. Very pleasant. Uh, you'd be have a better chance of swimming across that without your arms and legs than, than crossing from flesh to spirit, from death to life. And yet as a church, God has placed the gospel in our hands. 
and in the hands of every Christian, every church. And he sent us out with, with the power of the gospel to take that into the lives of other people. That's my detour. We're, we're moving back in. Uh, it's, a, it's a good detour. I'm happy to do it. Uh, so, so here we have, we have to see something, though. So we've seen action and results, right? The, the mind of the flesh produces death, and the mind of the spirit produces life and peace. But, but there's more here than just actions and results. And this is really important to see. Uh, he's not here telling us, you need to do this. You know, you need to have the mind of the spirit. That's not the purpose of this passage. Uh, he's not here to tell us, this is what you should be doing, Romans, and us as well. It's not, a, it's not a guilt passage toward those who haven't been walking well. Because it's not just actions and results that he's describing. It's nature, actions, and results. He says those who are, and, and literally the wording here is, those who are being according to the flesh, in verse 5 there. And... and and then he talks about also those who are being according to the Spirit. So those who are being according to the flesh. So those who are defined by the flesh. Those who are controlled by the flesh. Uh, well, they have the mind of the flesh. And that produces death. And those who are according to the Spirit, set by the Spirit, if you will. Well, they have the mind of the Spirit. And they are set on the Spirit's desires, and so they reap life and peace. He's encouraging us here. He's not commanding us. He's telling. He's saying, this is what you are now, Christian. If you have God's Spirit in you, you have been moved from a life that was sowing and reaping death and decay and destruction to a life that reaps life and peace. And down there in verse 10, uh, he does actually point us toward one of the big root reasons, one of the wonderful ways that God has done that. He says it's because of righteousness. Uh, and he's talking about the righteousness of Christ working in us there. The righteousness that we have been given from Christ. And it's all by God's power working in you in his spirit. Not by your own effort. That, that's why this, is, this isn't a command. He's, he's just saying this is who you are. This is who you have been made to be because God's spirit is working in you. You live a life that reaps life and peace now. You know, we, we saw this really uh, uh, vividly in our lives uh, late last year. Um, we went through this season uh, of about a year of really stressful hard times as a family, uh, really, really weighed down by it. And, and we got to kind of September through November last year, uh, and we were just weary, just run down. And, and God worked in this amazing spirit and yet practical way that he used just to, just to align my heart with the spirit's desires uh, it was it was bordering, bordering on involuntary. Uh, he does call us to be active particip participants in what he's doing, and yet yet it was just this thing that happened. Um, uh, it, it started with Ellie, our daughter, started waking up at 5 a.m. every single morning 
Uh, now, I know that, that sounds like a torturous way for God to work in us, but, but let me get to the point. Um, yeah, she was waking up like clockwork, and Crystal was pregnant at the time with Charlie, and so uh, I was the guy who was getting up with Ellie every day at five. Uh, and uh, for the first week or two of that, it was a remarkably unproductive and, and, and not great time. Like I, I, would, I would get up, I'd get out of bed, I would pour Ellie a glass of milk, um, well, plastic sippy cup of milk so it didn't go everywhere, and, and I'd give that to her and I'd put it on a CD and then I would flop on the couch and be like a dead man. And, and really how it usually went was that Ellie would drink her cup within two minutes and then hit me in the face with a book on the couch for the next hour and a half or so uh, until I finally gave in and got off the couch. And I don't really know when this happened, but at some point the Spirit just laid it on my heart, John, I'm giving you this time for your good. It's, I, this is a, a gift to you and I don't want you to waste it. And like, I'm not a morning person. It's, it's an understatement. I, you know, given over to the desires of the sinful flesh, I would say that mornings are an abomination, you know. Uh, I, I don't do well early mornings. I work as a nurse, I have to, but, but it, it's a forced thing. Um, and yet suddenly I have this new power in the mornings. I can't explain what happened. But I, I just, suddenly I was just up at five and I was into the word and I was praying. And like I would spend like 45 minutes in prayer with God and, and, and then, you know, an, ever, an extra, you know, 40, half an hour of, of reading. This is an every morning. And it was interrupted a bit because Ellie would still be coming to me and I'd be like, the next book. And, but, but, and it was just this amazing life-giving time after a really hard season where, where I couldn't really say anything but that God's spirit was, was giving me life and peace by bringing my heart into line with his desires through his word and through prayer and through my daughter waking up at 5 a.m. Uh, and that, that really illustrates for me what's happening in this passage. God works in his people's lives through the Spirit. It looks different, and it happens in every single part of our lives. The Spirit comes in and works change in us. And you know, in that last verse, verse 11, uh, Paul, he carries this to its final conclusion. Not only do you reap inner life and peace now if you've believed in Jesus, but if God's spirit is in you, you will reap eternal life. He will give life to your mortal body. In the future, when he gives, when he, when he resurrects, when he comes back and returns us to life and we live eternally with him. Isn't that just such a, such a good reality? <laughs> so if we boil it down, this, this, this little passage of ours, Paul here points out, if you've believed in Jesus, you are empowered by the Spirit. To the Spirit in you. To live the life of the Spirit now. And your physical body will one day be made anew by that Spirit. And we've kind of raced through that a bit. Uh, we didn't look at every single detail of this passage uh, because there's something really significant at the end that speaks power and life and, and, and wonder into all of this in a, in a completely different way, in just a marvellous way. Paul's been hammering the whole way throughout this, the uh, powerful, transforming work of the Spirit of God in God's people, both, both in the current transformation, in the current everyday life, and in the future at the resurrection. And we could hear that. Uh, very easily hear that as Christians and go, well, you know, that's awesome and all, but 
how can I know? How can I be sure that he'll succeed in what he's doing? How can I be sure that he'll hold me in salvation? That might be a question that you grapple with. How can I be sure that he'll never stop working for my transformation every day? That he'll never stop coming into every situation and transforming it by his spirit? How can I know that he'll surely one day give me eternal life? And Paul grounds the Spirit's power in the one event in history that moves it beyond question. Read verse 11 again with me. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Bob Anderson, and and, and the rest. (laughs) Anyone who has believed. I work in a hospital. That doesn't happen. People don't come back to life. This spirit has power that the world doesn't know. The spirit that raised him from the dead. And notice, notice, although he connects it to our future hope there in verse 11, this reality, it's in the present. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you right now, you already have resurrection life coursing through you if you are a Christian. And you can know the power of it for sure because of one thing alone. Jesus Christ is alive. And because Jesus rose and he demonstrated his his defeat of your sin, you can not just be sure of the power of the Spirit, you can be sure of the intent of the Spirit and the authority of the Spirit. Because in his dying and rising, he won for us that salvation, as Paul's already outlined. He won for us that working. We know God means to do it because he sent his own son to die and to rise so that it would be done. What Paul says here at the beginning of verse 11 just flows powerfully through every part of what we've already seen in this passage, bringing it to life in a new way. Because here we see the magnitude and and the certainty of God the Spirit's power which is in every believing Christian now. Because Jesus walked out of the grave, we can know that there is spiritual power to live now. I want this one to be our focus today. Like I'm, I'm going to take this into a couple of different areas, but, but think about it. When you face sin and struggle in your life, this is the truth to cling to. The spirit who has power to make death alive again is at work in you to defeat your sin and to, and to lead you in living a new life. It's, and, and it's not just in defeating particular areas of sin, it's transforming everything about what you do every day. It's how you eat and who you eat with. It's how you drive your car. It's how you speak to your kids or your grandkids or your nephews and nieces or your brothers and sisters or the people on your street or anyone, the person at the store, you know. It's how human interaction happens in your life. The spirit comes in and transforms that. He steps in and, and, and moves everything to the glory of Jesus. 
he steps in and powerfully moves in us because Jesus rose from the dead. Here's another thing from it. Because Jesus walked out of the grave, we can know that the Spirit will faithfully keep us in salvation if you have believed until Jesus returns. He's not going to fail. When you face fears and doubts, and let's be honest, often we do. Christians often have doubts in quiet moments that they're scared to share even with each other. It's not a good fear, by the way. When you struggle to understand how it is that someone like you is saved, remember if you've, if you've believed in Jesus to save you, then the power that raised him from the dead will keep you. Here's another one. Because Jesus walked out of the grave, we can be certain that he will one day give life to our mortal bodies. One day we will live with him and dwell with him forever. Let me chuck it in there. Uh, if you don't know the saving power of the Spirit of God in you, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the obvious call here is just believe, right? It's, it's not more complicated than that. The same Spirit that caused the dead man who had had all of the sin and the brokenness and the disease and the, uh, the hatred and the just the evil of this world. Every result of sin, every sin, every punishment for sin that could have gone on for eternity, the man who'd had all of that poured onto him in death, the spirit that caused him to walk out of the grave alive and free calls you to believe and can bring you to that faith. Now, at the end of this chapter, um, Paul returns to the resurrection of Jesus in force. Down in verse 34, uh, he'll ask this rhetorical question, who is to condemn? We hear a little echo there, right, of, of, of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. The death and the resurrection of Jesus isn't just the ultimate demonstration of the Spirit's ability to bring life. It's the act by which God secured that life for us. Because Jesus died and is raised, our sin is defeated. Death has no claim on those who are his. We, have, we can have confidence now that God is fulfilling a good purpose in us. He is transforming us, his people, in every situation, in every way through the gospel. And he will finish that transformation completely and bodily in the, the resurrection. So let's, let's, let's zero in a little bit here. Uh, the Spirit of God comes in, like we said, said this a couple of times now, transforms every part of our lives to make us more like Jesus. Uh, and I kind of threw in a few uh, bits of our lives there, but I want to ask you a question now, and this isn't one of those rhetorical sermon questions. Uh, we have three, six, 15 adults in this room right now. That's, that's, that's a big-ish small group size. So there is no reason why we can't actually discuss this right now. Uh, Matt, I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Never mind. Um, 
how do we see the Spirit's transforming work in our lives? How have, better question, how have you seen it? How has he changed you? And, and next question, in what situations could we trust more that he will? Because, because God, Paul's going to go on. He's been encouraging us in this. But in the next passage, which we're not looking at directly tonight, don't get too nervous about how long this is going to go for. In the next passage, he's going to call us to walk in line with the Spirit. He's going to call us to live out this life uh, voluntarily living in line with what the Spirit is doing powerfully in us. So how could we trust more? How, how could we be looking for the Spirit to act in different situations?